0: to begin this morning by talking about my airplane a little bit. Uh, i got to say, now the airplane it used to fly, it's kind of sad, but uh, it, it is a favorite of the Army um, for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons it's a favorite of the Army is because we carry a variety of different kinds of weapons, which is good uh, because each weapon is different. And there's a lot of different... The battlefield is a flexible battlefield. And there's a lot of times that you're trying to get different kinds of weapons effects uh, depending on uh, the situation on the ground. <clears throat> now, there's a, whole, there's a whole science behind it. Um, but one of the reasons uh, that different weapons are selected, one over the other, is for what's called the frag pattern of a weapon, the frag pattern, which is like the three-dimensional space that a munition encompasses when it's at high order. So, you know, we have in our books these diagrams. We know that the frag pattern of this munition is this big for this long, this high, and that kind of thing. And so sometimes you're concerned about frag pattern, and then there's a host of other things. But one of the ideas that comes out of frag pattern uh, considerations is the consideration of collateral damage. Which, uh, you know, back in the 90s, Back in the '90s, uh, so sappy. But back in uh, ba- this, really, this, this—the heightening of collateral damage in combat—is really something that's that's quite unique, I think, to our time. And you, uh, unless you've been there, you would not believe the amount of exhaustive energy that goes into trying to determine collateral damage, because what we've come to realize is. It is exactly the collateral damage that can be most the most significant shaper of the battlefield. So, what is collateral damage? Collateral damage is the stuff you break that you don't intend to break when you employ a weapon. So, it's the surrounding environment that somehow gets caught in the frag pattern of the munition, but is not the target. It's not the intention, but for one reason or another, it gets caught there, either out of necessity or out of accident or out of poor weapon But uh, uh, collateral damage is unintended consequences. It's unintended consequences. Which, when I say that, means you could do everything right as a a warfighter. You um, You could employ the correct weapon. You could hit the correct target. You could hit the target accurately. You could hit it with all of the right considerations. But the collateral damage of the weapon itself... Could totally change the sentiment of of, of the ground fight or, or the shape of the ground fight. There's there's occasions when there's you might show up to uh, to fight on behalf of a village beneath you. The village is on the you know the coalition side. Whatever that means these days is on the side of the coalition. Their hearts are for the mission of the coalition, and the the coalition is fighting on their behalf. Everything is going great. You hit the target. You do everything right, but somebody gets caught in the envelope of collateral damage, and that village could change sides overnight. And so the more urban we get, the m- certainly the more uh, populated areas that we, we try to uh, affect and that we fight, find ourselves fighting in, the more significant this idea of collateral damage gets. And it, it's that way in life, too. There really is nothing that you or I do or don't do that doesn't have some kind of envelope, some kind of frag pattern of its own. You know, you, you do something or you say something or you're failing in life. The, the thing you, you're not good at or the, or the sin that follows you around or whatever it is, I guarantee you the frag pattern of that problem in your life is bigger than you think it is. But there's collateral damage that you're wreaking. You have no intention of doing it. It's unintended. But it's happening. It's happening in your life. It's happening in all of our lives. that the, the failings in life, they affect the people around us. and it, it happens in, in no place more than in the home, doesn't it? The home is like urban warfare. you know It's a bunch of people tied up in a close proximity, and everybody's frag pattern is in everybody else's frag pattern. We're all shaping one another. And oftentimes, particularly for parents, they can pour all of this energy into doing the right thing. They can make the right choices for the right schools, say the right things, do this right, do that right, do that right. And things don't work out. Why not? Because somehow the collateral damage of something you've done can shape things more significantly than all of your intentional activities. It's just how it works. We are kind of a, we're, in part, we're a product of how the collateral damage of one another has has interfered with our lives, and, and I'm, I'm here to suggest this morning that your collateral damage is more significant than you think it is. That that problem in your life is really a problem. That you're really hurting people around you that you don't even know. That you're shaping you're shaping the world around you. And this morning, as we turn our attention to Abram and Sarai, and we watch what they do, they they have this disastrous occasion that I think we mimic in whole or in part. But as we look at them, I hope this morning it's a, it's a more confessional morning for you. I hope there's a time this morning where you, you feel or you come to a realization of what it is in your life that, that you are unintentionally causing strife or pain or something in someone else's life. And if you're the victim, if you sit here this morning and you're the victim of someone else's frag envelope, I pray that, that you might find refuge in the Lord. So if you will pray with me, we'll turn to Scripture. Lord Jesus, we give you this time. We give you the word. Father, we pray your spirit would work in each one of us to bring us to a place of true confession. Lord, confession between us and you. Lord, show us us our misdeeds. Show us those things which we don't see. Show us how, how our actions hurt others. And make us faithful. In our desire to be more like you. Amen. If you'll open your word to Genesis 16. We're going to be there this morning. Genesis 16, verses 1 to 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you, or should be somewhere close. If you don't own a Bible, uh, please take that as a gift and read it. Works best when read. We'll be in Genesis 16. We'll begin with verses 1 to 3. And and just so you know, if you're a a clock watcher, we'll probably spend most of the time on the first point. We'll get there. So uh, uh, just honor the pace here. Genesis 16, verses 1 through 3. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, But she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. Ten years, 10 years in Canaan is what the Bible says. They've been there for 10 years. He's 80, 85, 86 right now as, as, as um, the scripture is being told. And I want you to try to imagine how you would how your relationship with the Lord might be, how, how your spirit of questioning kind of the, the, the patience in your soul might have weathered. After 10 years, of being in this land that God said he'd give you, and you still do not have a child. I I just want you to imagine that, because really, if you think about it, all the promises that God has given Abram, they haven't really come true yet. God said, I'll make a nation out of you. Well, he said that when he was an Ur, and he said that on the way to calling him in. When he made the covenant with him, I don't know if you noticed, God said, actually, you won't be the nation Four hundred years from now it'll be the nation. Did you ever think about that? I mean, that, that's kind of fine print if I were Abram. So I get to Canaan, I'm ready for it to be mine, and God goes, what? The iniquities of the Canaanites and the Hittites has not yet reached its full measure. Your people will come back four hundred years from now. So what do you think Abram and Sarai are doing? They're roaming the land. It's not their land, they're not living in the cities. They're traveling around. You know, Abram, the first land Abram ever buys is the funeral, the, the, the grave site of his wife, which is going to be years and years and years from now. He is a stranger in a strange land walking around and God has still not answered this promise. I think that would be hard. And I really hope, I hope as you, as you read the word, and, and you know if you're dev- having a devotion through Genesis on your own time, I hope you'll try to gain a patience for the kind of time that's being spoken of here. Sometimes when we read it in the Bible, ten years passed, it's such a short little phrase, we don't really think ten years have passed. Ten whole years have passed, and nothing has happened. I wonder particularly how Sarah has dealt with these 10 years. I mean, let's think about it. The, the promises have come to Abram. So Sarah has already kind of been a bystander to the whole thing. Abram comes home, Honey, I had a promise from the Lord. You know, it's different. It's different when you're listening, when you're hearsay on God's promise. So there's that. Then there's this constant nagging reality that Sarah is barren, which runs against the whole promise. Every time there's a promise, her barrenness is brought to mind. In fact, if there's two themes, if you read Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and on, two ideas continually show up in the text. One is the idea of age, and one is the idea of her barrenness. Genesis 12, they make sure to tell us that Abram's 75 and that Sarah's barren. Genesis 16, Abram's 85, Sarah's barren. Genesis 17, Abram's 99, Sarah's barren. The Bible keeps doing that because it's trying to show you the kind of time and the grief that someone like Sarah and her husband are dealing with as they walk around this land waiting for God to answer. If I were Sarah, I'd feel lonely. I would feel lonely. I would feel broken. I'd feel like the problem. God gives a promise to Abram, not Sarah. Soon it becomes clear that it's not Lot. Soon it becomes clear it's not Eliezer. Pretty soon it comes clear that it's going to be from the flesh of Abram. That's what God says. From your own body. From your own body I'm going to raise a child. How do you think that landed when he came home with that news? You know, Sarah's like, well, maybe it's going to be Eliezer. Honey, it's not Eliezer. I've told you that. It's not Eliezer. God said it's coming from my own body. There's probably a kitchen conversation like that. I mean, these are, this is a real couple, right? It's a real couple. They're like us. They deal with things like we do. How would you deal with that if you were Abram? It says it's coming from my own body and my wife is barren. How do you think she dealt with that? You know, it's hard to, it's hard to study this section of Genesis without grieving Sarah. Just the lonely life she built. And I think by this time in Genesis 16, she's come to the place in her life where she says, I am the problem with the promise. The reason the promise isn't coming to fruition is because of me. And so she makes this offer. Take my maidservant. I think in Sarah's mind, you know, she says this, perhaps I will build a family through her. I wonder if Sarah's thinking perhaps my role, my whole role in this, problem, in this promise to Abram is to get out of the way. Perhaps I'm in the way, that's the problem and so she gets out of the way and she gives her maidservant to her husband now before we move on i want to i want to diffuse what may seem like just a horrendous thing by at least a little bit by saying that this is not an unheard of practice in the ancient near east in fact it was not only done by the jews in fact half the tribes of israel show up this way so uh, it was done again in this family line unsurprisingly But it's also done in the people groups around. So there's record of the Assyrians doing this. There's record of in the Hammurabi Code and in other documents of this happening to different people groups. In fact, there's a a marriage license, uh, an Assyrian marriage license from this time, the second millennium, that pretty much says there's a provision in it. if, If the wife is barren, we can get a maid servant so I, w- I don't want you to think that Sarah is inventing something I don't want you to think she's going off the deep end what I do want you to see is that she is turning to the cultural process to make this promise come to fruition that's what she's doing God's promise is not happening there's silence from the Lord they've waited and they've waited and they waited God doesn't have anything hasn't, hasn't spoken into their lives and what does she finally su- suggest she just suggests that they build a family the way the rest of the world builds a family stop waiting maybe i'm the problem that's what's happening here but there's something that's spiritually happening here that's more significant and this is where I want to where I want to spend some time this is what's spiritually happening between abram and sarah that the covenant of marriage this covenant of one man one woman this covenant for life For better or for worse, this covenant of marriage, which we know is intact in this time. I mean, it's clear. Abram has for 85 years of his life not slept with his maidservant. That means he knows he ought not to do it. The fact that he's waited 85 years to make this decision shows us that he knows it's not supposed to be. I mean, it seems clear from the, the life of Abram and from the way the scriptures write about Abram that they know what marriage is, that this is not a caveman dragging a woman behind him with a big spike club, that this is a real marriage of real people, that they understand the issues here, that there's, there's real ideas here. And, and what this story is showing us is that between Abram and Sarah, that this covenant of marriage of one man, of one woman, for life, for better, or for worse, somehow feels to them to be the obstacle to God's blessing. that somehow God's covenant of marriage has gotten in the way of God's plan. Let me say it in a more general way, that Abram and Sarah are operating under the confused notion that God's particular plan and will for their life, his particular plan, is in some way against his general plan and will for their life that what God wants to do right here, right now, in their life, this month or this season, what he's trying to do in this very instance with a child, somehow that his will there runs against his general will, which is observable and understandable and is clear to us all the time. That's the problem here. That's where the, that's where the mistake is happening, is that Sarah says, Sarah and Abram are saying, God said he'd give us a child He's going to give us a child. God promised He would give us a child. It's God's will that we should have a child. We know God wants us to have a child. We're supposed to have a child. And somehow they get to They say that enough in their own mind that they decide, therefore, it's okay for us to do this. And what actually happens is a wife takes another woman and places her in the arms of her husband. That's messed up. But I think we do this all the time. I think we as Christians, we as people, are so wrapped up in God's particular will for our life. We're all about what is God doing with us right now. What is God doing in my job or in my family? Is God going to get me into the right school? Is God going to give me the right, the right income? Is God going to do these things for us? And we're so captivated by what God is doing to us this week or this month or this season that we can lose sight of what God generally intends for us all the time. We want to know what God is doing with us now. We think God's entire will is written, is wrapped up in what he's going to do to us this week when there's this entire book that shows us how we just generally ought to live. Generally. How we ought to live all the time. But what happens is when we have this thing in sight, when we know God wants me to have this job, God wants me to do well in the school, God wants me to do this, when we get so wrapped up in that, the general truths of God begin to blur. They can fade into the distance. They be- can become unclear. They be- can become easy to forget. I'll give you a few examples. Parents, in your desire, your zealous desire to raise children who will be successful in trying to do things right with your children, your children, to give them all the opportunities, to get them in the right school, to get their resumes looking good, to make sure they play the right instrument and speak all the right languages, to do this and that and this and that. Have you forgot to teach them about Jesus Christ? What would they say? Have you driven them to the wall to do well in school and yet you don't talk about the Lord at home? I would say, what is God's general teaching about this? God's general teaching is you should never stop talking about God with your kids. It's just general teaching. It's clear. When you wake up, when you lie down, when you're going somewhere, when you're walking, whatever you see, when something comes on TV that's not right, what do you do? Well you turn it off and then you say, Well, let's talk about it. Do you avoid those conversations? Because you're so wrapped up in getting into the right school because you know God's plan for them is a good plan where you want them to be successful. I'd say you're taking God's particular will and you're putting it in front of his general will. And it's out of order. What about in the workplace? This room, this church is far too successful to not imagine that there's someone here who would readily admit that God has placed them in a position. Oh, this job I have, this is what God gave me, this is where God wants me. We have too many good jobs here for us not to say that. If we all had terrible jobs, we'd all be confused. Did God really put me here? But there's enough good jobs in this room to know that somebody here is saying, I love the job, God gave me this job, He put me here, and yet somebody here has got to at some point be dealing with the temptation to be unethical in the very position they're in. I would be, I, we would be crazy not to expect it in this church. That we can have positions of such influence and such temptation and not be pushed to step outside the lines of God? Are we to say that God put us there and then God understands that we need to be unethical? Would God contradict Himself? Would God, in His general will, bring us to a place where His particular will is an obstacle? That does not happen. God does not contradict himself. What about relationships? I'm only 35, but I have given up trying to count the number of times in my life I have met someone who is a thousand percent sure they've met the person for them. This is the person God has given me in my life. Oh yeah, God's given me this person... They're sure that God's particular will for their life, their plan for life, is this person. He is the best. And yet, this person does not know the Lord. Does God's general will for our life conflict with His particular will for our life? No. Someone who says, This person is the person that God has given me, and yet, to keep that person in the relationship, they're cohabitating. Does God's general will for our life ever run against the grain of His particular will for our life? No. They are one the same. God does not contradict Himself. But what happens for us is we get so close to what we think God wants for us, we can see it. Abram and Sarah, they can, ah, they know there's a child in the future. They know it's coming from His flesh. It's too close to them that they have to grab it for themselves. And they go against God's general teaching of marriage. And the result is massive collateral damage. If you're taking notes, that's point one. (laughs) Oh, brother. Let's read. Let's keep reading. Uh, Verses four to six. Now we're going to move quickly through 4 to 6, but we need to stop there for a second. Speaking of Abram, he slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms. And now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Now, I, I don't want to spend too long here, but I do want us to kind of identify, first of all, what is the frag pattern of this mistake? I mean, where's the collateral damage coming from? And it is in this word despise, which, by the way, I think is poor translation. What's, what I, is essentially happening here, uh, or what I think is happening here, is that Hagar, who was once a no name maidservant, now has status in the family coveted, priceless status. In fact, there's, there's actually a legal shift that happens. Did you know the language? Called her maidservant, maidservant, maidservant. And then it said, And Abram took her as his wife, in verse 30. So the, the, the word wife there is Hebrew isah, which doesn't mean all the same things it does to us. So she's not a wife of like full rights of the office of wife, but she's somewhere between maidservant and wife. She's an underwife. But she's an underwife with a major asset which is she's not barren. And you can imagine, we're human enough to know the kind of drama that would show up in a home when a wife of Mary, and they, but how long have they been married? A long time. Who has been barren. That she is she is the first order wife, but she has no child. And comes here comes along a second order wife who has a child. And in all of that is this, probably this growing attitude of some kind of a quality. Maybe Sarah says, Haggar, go get my shoes. And Haggar goes, you know, I'm I'm feeling really, got a lot of morning sickness (laughs) because I'm pregnant. You know, with child. Those kinds of things, you can imagine those kinds of things are entering in. The spirit, the antagonistic spirit is entering in. In fact, in one of these extant texts, that we found from from around the the Hebrew culture that that show that this was a practice, there's one that says, it actually has a provision in it that says that if the maidservant starts acting like she's an equal, you can send her away. It's, it's, It's such a regular occurrence, they've actually encoded it in law. So this is where all of a sudden everything goes wrong. But then you have this kind of Ironic moment where Sarah is getting mad at Abram. Not the only person that that showed up as irony. And whose idea was it? Sarah's. Sarah goes to Abram. She says, take my maidservant. This way maybe I can make a family. Perhaps I can build a family through her. It's all Sarah's idea. It goes exactly as planned. right? Perfectly weapon But the f- frag pattern has such collateral damage now now Sarah is going, it is your fault that this happened. She's right. This is the thing. She's absolutely right. This is Abram's failure. From the word go, this is Abram's failure. Let me ask you this question. Who did God speak to in Ur of the Chaldeans? Sarah? Abram, who did God give a promise to? Abram, who did God appear to? Abram, who did God send Melchizedek to? Abram, who did God have a vision with? Abram, who did God make a covenant with? Abram, what is Sarah doing trying to fix the problem? What kind of husband is this? That after all the, we know this is not the right answer, otherwise they would have done it in year one. Here we are in year 10 in Canaan and they're finally desperate and Abram's waiting for his wife to finally let the monkey off her back. I mean, the whole thing opens up to me this desperate desperate window into a failed relationship of a poor husband. It makes me think he's had her carry this burden on her shoulders all this time. Like maybe her barrenness was her problem. Do you think if you were a godly husband and you truly believed that God was going to give you a child from your own flesh, you truly believed it and you had faith, do you think you would let your wife walk around carrying the weight of her closed womb like this? I hope not. I hope if my wife came to me and said this, I would say, Sarah, this was God's promise to us. We're going to wait. That if God is going to give me a child, he's going to do it through you because God's general will does not contradict his particular will. But Abram says, okay. And now we have this. Now, I feel like I preached this like six weeks ago. Husbands, you're responsible. So, go listen to that one. And we'll keep moving. Because i got to move. Verses 7 to 15. So, uh, apparently, Hagar is pretty mistreated. How mistreated do you think you'd have to be to be a a pregnant, maidservant, slave girl and decide to run away into the desert? She's mistreated and she flees. In verse 7, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai answered. Or, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bir Lacharoi. It is there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Now there's a lot we could say in these final moments about the passage we just read. I, what I want to do this, as we close is focus more on what does this tell us about the Lord and our role when we mess things up. And so if you're taking notes, I'd say the first thing I would, I'd say this shows about the Lord is first of all that he's sovereign. That he sees the victim. There's, so much, there's just so much we could worship the Lord knowing that he sees the victim and he comes to the victim. In this whole story, he rushes to the victim. And in fact, I'm convinced, it's stories like these that convince me that scripture is true. Because if this story, if this book was a book, a culturally derived book, in order for a people group, an ethnic people group, to define themselves, do you think for a moment, in a million, billion years, they would have Yahweh going to an Egyptian slave girl? I challenge you to find another example across all of the proclaiming literature that claims to be divine, to find an occasion where they would forfeit their patriarchal status and give God to a slave girl. In fact, Hagar is the only one in Scripture who names the Lord. She gives him a name. You are the God who sees me. So there's this beautiful sovereignty of the Lord that he sees the victim. He knows the victim, and he cares for the victim. And and this morning, if you are the victim, I'm here to say that God sees you. He cares about you. He cares about you more than we care about you. Those closest to you, God cares about you more than that. But because God's sovereign, he also sees our failures. He certainly sees Abram and Sarah and all this. And out of this comes this teaching. And this teaching is, is taught actually by Sarah's sojourn, or Hagar's sojourn here, that God, because he sees what we do, God is not content to leave our lives without the consequences of our sins. Let me say it this way, that that it would be nice, it would be nice if the consequences of our sin in this life were, were dealt with by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's death on the cross deals with the sin, our eternal consequences of our sin, but it does not deal with the earthly consequences of our sin. His atonement for our sin allows us to get into heaven, but it doesn't mean that there are not consequences for the things we do wrong here. which is significant, because if I were Abram, there'd be something very elegant about the fact that Hagar ran away. I mean, that is, you can't pray for something to clean itself up that nicely. Imagine it. Here you have this thing with Sarah, this big thing blows up in your face. The whole thing's just gone south. You say to your wife, do with her whatever you want. I'm not in love with her. You have her. Take her. Do whatever you want with her. Next thing you know, she's out of the picture. That's just elegant. From an earthly perspective, that's just nice. You can, kind of, you can have the glory of regretting your decisions, right? You can regret what you've done. You can repent to the Lord of what you've done, but you don't have to deal with what you've done. It's gone. It's in the desert. That's nice. You know what God does? He goes and gets it. And he brings it back. Because God is not satisfied with his people who do not atone for their own failings. We can cause ourselves problems when we get so used to looking at the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we think, we actually think in our minds, the only thing that happens is we repent and confess and turn to Jesus, and it's all good. We need to remember Jesus Christ died for our sins. They were paid for. Our sins were actually paid for. Your sins, all your failings, where blood was shed, there was suffering for your sins. And in this life, ought we not to mimic Jesus Christ? That when we see that we have created a massive frag pattern that have hurt people all around us. When the collateral damage of our failings is significant, do you not think that we should behave as Jesus Christ would and do our best to atone? Rather than send it off in the desert and hope it doesn't come back, God would say, go get it and redeem it. God has given us the Spirit and the power and, and the fruits of the Spirit so that we can fix things that were broken. Don't you think we ought to do that? This, this, this idea that, that hopefully it'll just go away is a totally unchristian idea. And it breeds false Christians whose goal is to look as nice as they can on Sunday. We cannot escape the consequences of the sin in this life. It's here. It's, God has given us the spirit to work through that. And I pray, I hope, I hope this morning that you have identified something in your life that you need, a conversation you need to have, someone you need to talk to, something you need to change about yourself, something you need to own up about yourself. Which one of us here is perfect? We've all, there's collateral damage all around. And so we should fill ourselves with grace and we should be, we should be ready to apologize and to confess and to seek amends. That's what Zacchaeus did, right? The whole story of Zacchaeus is the fact that in this life, He seeks atonement. That's the beauty of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus hadn't even heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. He just met Jesus Christ. And the thrill of meeting Jesus Christ transformed his life so that he said, everything I've done wrong I'm going to make amends for. If I cheated you, I'll give you double. And God thinks that's good. We're going to make mistakes. It's my prayer that when it comes back from the desert, we receive it in the right way and we deal with it as Christians ought to. Amen.